Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... <laughs> Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. Hey, math fans, Jason Marshall, Math Dude, here with your weekly dose of quick and dirty tips to make math easier. The word histogram seems kind of weird. After all, unlike the sensibly named bar graph that we talked about last time, it's not at all clear from the word histogram what a histogram should look like. But, as we'll see today, the idea behind the histogram isn't nearly as weird as the word. In fact, the diagram makes a ton of sense for organizing certain kinds of information. But where does the word come from? What does it mean? In truth, we're not entirely sure. But the best idea I've come across, and there seems to be some consensus that this is probably true, is that the word histogram is a combination of the Greek words histos, which describes something standing upright, like the mast of a ship, and gramma, meaning drawing or writing. Why do I bother mentioning this? Because, as we'll soon find out, this means that the word histogram isn't actually weird at all. In fact, it's sort of a perfect name for this type of diagram. So, what is a histogram? How do you make one? And what can you learn from it? Let's find out. Histograms are a lot like bar graphs. In fact, if you squint your eyes a bit while looking at side-by-side bar graphs and histograms, you might not be able to tell the difference between them. But although they look similar, they are definitely different, mostly in terms of the type of data they're used to talk about. As you'll recall from last time, Bar graphs, also known as bar charts, are used to show the relative strengths of different categories of data. For example, if you want to display data from a survey in which people choose between options A, B, C, and D, you can make a bar graph with four vertical bars, one for each category, where the height of each bar represents the relative fraction of responses for each. But what about data that doesn't break down neatly into categories? For example... What if we want to somehow create a diagram showing the distribution of widths of the fall leaves my daughter has been collecting? I suppose we could categorize her leaves as narrow, medium, or wide, and then create a three-column bar graph, but that feels like a rather arbitrary and contrived thing to do. After all, one person's narrow might be another person's wide, and if you ask somebody else, you'll probably get an entirely different answer which won't do it all for our purposes. We can do better. Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... (laughs) (laughs) Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. You gotta come on, guys. This has to be like... Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. So instead of arbitrarily creating categories about things that don't want to be categorized, let's give the data an opportunity to shine by creating a histogram. 
To do so, we won't categorize our leaf widths. We'll sort them into bins instead. To see how this works, imagine we grab 25 boxes and label them from 1 centimeter up through 25 centimeters. Then we measure the width of each of our leaves, round it to the nearest centimeter, and put it in the box labeled with that width. After we finish, we just count up the leaves in each bin and make our histogram. As I mentioned earlier, making a histogram is a lot like making a bar graph, except that instead of drawing vertical bars to represent the relative sizes of categories, we draw vertical bars to represent the relative sizes of data bins. And to indicate that the data in a histogram is continuous and not categorized, in our case, this means that the leaf widths really range continuously between 0 and 25 centimeters, we usually draw the vertical columns of a histogram without gaps between them. This isn't strictly necessary, but it is very common. Imagine that the histogram we make from our leaf measurements tells us there are between 1 and 19 leaves in each of the 25 bins. As you might expect, our histogram also shows that there are not a uniform number of leaves in each bin, which means that some leaf widths are more common than others. In particular, our imaginary histogram shows what appears to be three different peaks, around 4, 13, and 21 centimeters. What does this tell us? To answer this question, let's think about why we actually make histograms in the first place. As with bar graphs, the advantage of histograms over simple tables is that histograms allow us to visually see how data is distributed and to quickly identify interesting trends. Case in point, the three peaks of our histogram tell us that there are three common leaf widths in our sample. What does that tell us? We can't say for sure without doing a little more investigating, but it seems likely to me that it's telling us we have leaves from three different trees in our sample, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to see. By the way, you could take a look at a real histogram I made of this imaginary data over at the MathDudes website. That's quickanddirtytips.com mathdude. There's one other detail to worry about. How do you decide how to bin your data? How big or small should your bins be? In our example, by using one centimeter wide bins, we found that our leaf widths peaked around three different values. But what if we decided to use five centimeter wide bins instead? In other words, what if we put all of the leaves from one to five centimeters in one bin from 6 to 10 centimeters in the next, and so on with the fifth bin containing all the 21 to 25 centimeter wide leaves. This 5 centimeter wide binning is a perfectly reasonable and mathematically legitimate thing to do, but you should know that the histogram you get might not tell exactly the same story. Instead of three peaks, you might now only see a single peak, perhaps in the 11 to 15 centimeter range. And you might be led to think that this means there is only a single most common leaf width. In a certain sense, that's not an incorrect conclusion. The average leaf width for the entire sample does fall in that range. But using a smaller bin size with higher resolution allows you to see more detail in the data, which could, as in our example, change your interpretation of it. So how do you know how big to make your bins? The best answer is trial and error, practice, and perseverance. There is no right or wrong way to do your binning. How you do it depends entirely on what you're looking for with your analysis. 
With experience, you'll realize and learn that there are some better choices and worse choices, but they're not right or wrong. Although this can at first seem strange and even daunting, rest assured that as you gain experience, you'll begin to gain a better understanding of this artful side of the world of data analysis. Okay, that's all the math we have time for today. For more fun with math, please check out my book, The Math Dude's Quick and Dirty Guide to Algebra. With the holidays upon us, keep in mind that it's a perfect gift for you and all the math fans in your life. And algebra never gets old, so it really is the gift that we'll keep on giving. Forever. Think about that. That's a good gift. And you could give it. Just saying. Many thanks in advance for your support. Also, be sure to check out the other 266 Math Dude episodes available for your listening or reading pleasure. You can find them at quickanddirtytips.com slash mathdude or using your favorite podcast app. Until next time, this is Jason Marshall with the Math Dude's Quick and Dirty Tips to make math easier. Thanks for listening, math fans. Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western.